This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 34 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Next Thursday, we here in the United States will be sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner, hopefully with COVID-19 restrictions in mind. For Shabbat-observant Jews especially, Thanksgiving usually is a holiday they look forward to because they can have their families gather together without worrying about Shabbat travel restrictions. What most people, Jews included, don't know is that the American Thanksgiving is really the secular Sukkot, and that was deliberate. Canada's Thanksgiving is a different history, but it's celebrated on the second Monday in October, which makes more sense from our perspective, as you're about to hear. And so the topic for this week is Thanksgiving's Jewish Roots. In 1636, the theologian Roger Williams founded the Providence Colony. We know it today as Rhode Island. He was an author as well as a preacher, albeit a controversial one, and one of his literary creations was this poem, quote, Across the floods the pilgrim fled, their hands bore up the ark of heaven, and heaven their trusting footsteps led, till on these savage shores they trod and won the wilderness for God, unquote. The imagery in that poem is unmistakable, and so is its message. The Puritans were the new Israelites. The new world was their promised land. We'll get back to that. First, let's pity the poor Thanksgiving. It has almost nothing to do today with the first Thanksgiving. It's over-commercialized, and it isn't even observed at the right time. You heard that right. We are led to believe that Thanksgiving memorializes the first Thanksgiving, but if that was truly the case, then we're not observing it at the right time. We celebrate Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday in November. George Washington was the first president to assign a November date, but it kept changing from year to year and president to president until Abraham Lincoln in 1863 set Thanksgiving for the last Thursday in November. That date became the standard, but still had to be proclaimed each year by a president. That changed in 1941. At times, there are five Thursdays in November, and so a bunch of retailers from around the country petitioned Franklin Roosevelt to move the date back a week in order to start the Christmas buying season early. He resisted that request once before, but gave into it in 1941. Congress then decided to set the fourth Thursday as the permanent date. And that's how Thanksgiving became less a day of giving thanks and more a day of getting to the shopping mall before all the good stuff is gone. While commercialization has watered down Thanksgiving, its religious roots, and particularly its Jewish roots, are still showing. The first Thanksgiving was observed in the fall of 1621. According to James Baker, Vice President for Research at Plymouth Plantation Museum, the most likely date for that observance was September 29, 1621, although there's a lot of disagreement among scholars about that, many of whom try to put it in late November. In any case, that first Thanksgiving lasted for three days, 
and its purpose was to celebrate the abundant harvest in the only way the Puritans knew how to do so, by thanking God. That date, Baker cites, tells the whole story. September 29, 1621, was also the 14th of Tishrei, 5382, Erev Sukkot, and the first Thanksgiving lasted into the first two days of Sukkot. The pilgrims deliberately patterned their festival of Thanksgiving on Sukkot, the festival of the ingathering, or harvest, which is why it's also known as the festival of Thanksgiving. As to why the pilgrims did so, the historian H.B. Alexander had this to say in his essay, The Hebrew Contribution to the Americanism of the Future. For the Puritans, he wrote, the Hebrew Bible, quote, formed their minds and dominated their characters. Its conceptions were their conceptions, unquote. But let's not take his word for it alone. Here's what William Bradford governor of the Plymouth Colony, wrote in proclaiming the first Thanksgiving, quote, May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in the wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice, and looked on their adversity, etc., unquote. Bradford didn't just write those words. He specifically took them from Deuteronomy 26. By the way, in the preface to his History of Plymouth Plantation, Bradford included 25 biblical passages written in his own hand, in the Hebrew original, together with an English translation. In the book itself, he provided a Hebrew-English vocabulary of several hundred words. The preface was meant to provide readers with the biblical text upon which his history is based. The entire history itself is filled with references to and verses from the Tanakh, from our Bible. Bradford, in his statement about Thanksgiving, also quoted verses from Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms. Bradford's reliance on the Tanakh, and in this case Deuteronomy specifically, is where Sukkot comes in. When it came time to celebrate their bountiful first harvest, the early Puritans did what they'd always done. They turned to the Torah for guidance. Here's what Bradford and company found in Deuteronomy 16, referring to Sukkot. Quote, After you have gathered in your grain and your wine, and you shall rejoice in your feast, because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice." Unquote. That's what the Torah said, and that's what Bradford and company did in 1621. And, according to James Baker's calculations, they did it on the same day Jews around the world celebrated Sukkot, our festival of Thanksgiving. To be sure, Giving thanks to God is built into Judaism, starting with the Torah. And it's not a once-a-year thing. We're even supposed to start each day with words of thanks. I offer thanks before you, living and eternal King. The Torah tells us, among other things, that, quote, When you have eaten your fill, give thanks to the Lord your God, unquote. 
That commandment is the basis for the grace after meals, or birkat hamazon. In other words, not only do we make blessings before eating or drinking anything, or should, we also should be giving thanks when we're done eating or drinking anything. The prophet Jeremiah goes beyond that. He urges us to, quote, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his kindness is everlasting, unquote. In other words, we don't just thank God every day for our food. We thank God for all the benefits available to us in this world God created. The world's religions all have elements of thanksgiving built into them. Sukkot, though, is unique in a very specific way. Going back two millennia, when the land of Israel was under the harsh thumb of Roman rule, and we had good reason to wish ill of the other, our sages of blessed memory nevertheless pointed out something quite extraordinary about Sukkot. It has to do with the fact that on Sukkot, we not only thank God for the just-completed harvest, but we add a prayer for sufficient rain to come in advance of the next growing season, not just for us, but for everyone else in the world. The late Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz once explained it this way, quote, In the verses in the Torah addressing the festival of Sukkot, the elements of thanksgiving and rejoicing are conspicuous. However, as an extension of the thanksgiving and rejoicing, there also are the special mitzvot, which include prayer for rain and blessing for the coming year, unquote. This, Steinzald said, is what makes our festival of thanksgiving, our Sukkot, unique, because it adds a universal theme to Sukkot. Quote, expressing thanks to God for past kindness and prayer and supplication for future success, and likewise, thanksgiving for the past harvest and prayer for rainfall in the coming year are not unique to the Jewish people. Thus, the festival of Sukkot becomes a festival for the entire world. Unquote. To return to our theme, though, that Bradford and company turned to the Torah for guidance in regard to their first harvest, that isn't a surprise to historians. It was common for the pilgrims to turn to the Hebrew Bible, as they called the Tanakh, for advice and guidance. Many pilgrims were even able to turn to the Tanakh in the original Hebrew, as Bradford could. In fact, the very first book ever published in North America was a translation of Tehillim, of Psalms, and it had Hebrew strewn throughout the text to help clarify meanings. Think about that. They used Hebrew to clarify the meaning of verses written in English for a readership that didn't have a single Jew in it. Many among the early Christian settlers in America were well-versed in Hebrew. That's why the Puritan minister Cotton Mather, when he wrote his history of the Puritans in America, referred to the early settlers as our Hasidim Rishonim. That's how he put it. It means our first righteous men who ruled, as he put it, Bi'ava Viura, with love and reverence for God. He used the Hebrew, and he didn't translate it for his readers. He didn't think he needed to translate these phrases, because he assumed his readers, his Christian readers, knew Hebrew. 
I discussed some of this emphasis on Hebrew in America's early days in my pre-July 4th podcast, but some of it bears repeating in the context of Thanksgiving. Members of the Continental Congress, for example, wanted to have so little to do with England that they actually considered several other languages for America before they gave up and decided not to decide at all. The languages they considered were French, Greek, German, and, wait for it, Hebrew. Hebrew, in fact, was an essential language to America's founding fathers. It was taught at all the major institutions of higher learning, including Rutgers, Princeton, known then as the College of New Jersey, Brown, King's College, the future Columbia, Harvard, Yale, William and Mary, Johns Hopkins, and Dartmouth. In other words, it was taught at the very breeding grounds for leadership in the New Republic. At least several of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were fluent in Hebrew, including Maryland's Samuel Chase, later an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Chase's father, by the way, once taught Hebrew at Eton back in merry old England. Then there's Virginia-born James Madison, our fourth president. He wasn't in Philadelphia in 1776, but he was there beginning in 1787 for the Constitutional Convention. He's known, in fact, as the father of the Constitution. When Madison graduated from the College of New Jersey, which eventually became Princeton University, he stayed on for an extra year just to study Hebrew and ethics. Not only did he speak and write Hebrew fluently, but when his class graduated in 1771, he actually delivered a speech at the graduation in fluent Hebrew. There's no question that the Hebrew language and its use were important to the Puritans and those who came after them. As the late journalist and author Herman J. Obermeyer noted some years ago, quote, the erudite Protestant clerics who headed America's colonial colleges were Hebraists. Hebrew was held in high regard by colonial America's intellectual leaders out of respect for the Jews' greatest contribution to Western civilization, unquote. Why was Hebrew considered so essential? Because it was the language of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh that greatest contribution to Western civilization. And the Tanakh was considered essential to creating a just and equitable society. And that is especially true of the first five books, meaning the Torah. The Puritans were preoccupied with the Tanakh. It colored all their activities, in the words of the late NYU professor Abraham Koch. As Koch put it, not only were these settlers, quote, imbued with the spirit of the prophets and with the lessons of the scriptures, but they also accepted biblical precepts and commandments literally and applied them vigorously, unquote. What influenced the early Puritans, then, Koch wrote, quote, can be said to have influenced America. Prime among their source books was the Old Testament, meaning the Tanakh, to them, the book was not a mere narrative of days gone by, but a scripture in life, meeting their daily needs and aspirations. Think what we will about their narrowness and bigotry. There is probably nothing more valuable, memorable, 
weighty or even commendable about the Puritans than their religion, and in that they were almost solely influenced by the Old Testament, unquote. The cultural historian Gabriel Sivan had this to say in his book, The Bible and Civilization, quote, No Christian community in history identified more with the people of the book than did these early settlers who believed their own lives to be a literal reenactment of the biblical drama of the Hebrew nation. They themselves were the children of Israel. America was their promised land, the Atlantic Ocean their Red Sea. The kings of England were the Egyptian pharaohs. The pact of the Plymouth Rock was God's holy covenant, and the ordinances by which they lived were the divine law. These emigre Puritans saw themselves as instruments of divine providence, a people chosen to build their new commonwealth on the covenant entered into at Mount Sinai, unquote. Koch, by the way, notes that, quote, the Puritans built up a body of law about the covenant, interpreted previously existing laws in terms of it, and derived a great deal of their power from it. Morality, not ceremony, was the vital teaching here. The accent was always placed on moral conduct rather than on ritual alone, unquote. Sounds like the theme of many of my sermons. Koch was a Jewish scholar, but Christian scholars are right there with him on this. Dr. John Woodland Welch, writing some years ago in the Brigham Young University Law Review, had this to say, quote, The Hebrew Bible was nothing short of the underlying fabric upon which American society was founded. The profound influence of biblical law on early American colonial law is obvious to those who have studied 17th century law in America. This utilization of biblical law was not a passing fancy in colonial America, unquote. Welch wasn't exaggerating. Many of the early law codes in Puritan New England were based on the Torah, rather than the Christian Bible or English common law. In 1641, for example, the Massachusetts Bay Colony adopted what it called the Capital Laws of New England. It was based almost entirely on Torah law albeit with a Talmudic spin, because seven of its 15 laws were actually the so-called Seven Laws of Noah, which is a rabbinic concept, not a biblical one. In 1655, 14 years after New England's laws were promulgated, the New Haven Colony's legislators made no bones about their view of Torah law. Said they, quote, The judicial laws of God, as they were delivered by Moses, and as they are a fence to the moral law, shall generally bind all offenders till they be branched out into particulars hereafter, unquote. That phrase, fence to the moral law, is very telling in its own right, because it's also a Talmudic reference. These weren't just scholars of Hebrew. Many of them were well-versed in Aramaic, the language of the Talmud, as well. For the record, New Haven's Code of 1655 contained 79 statutes. 38 of them came right out of the Tanakh, and almost all of them were from the Torah. In other words, nearly half the statutes in the New Haven Code of 1655 had their origins in Torah law, while only 3% came from the Christian Bible. 
The Jewish roots of Thanksgiving are undeniable, and so are the Jewish roots in American democracy, as my pre-July 4th podcast discussed. Rarely discussed, however, is whether America has been good for the Jews and Judaism overall. The answer depends on one's own point of view. What can't be denied is that the great experiment that is America posed and continues to pose unique problems for Judaism. At no other time in world history and in no other place did religion of any stripe find more fertile ground for free expression than right here in the United States, certainly from 1776 onwards. This was as true for Judaism as it was for Christian sects. As Professor Jonathan Sarna explains, quote, The world of American religion opened up with the leveling of restrictive colonial laws and monopolistic church establishments, extended the boundaries of legitimate faiths to embrace Jews in new ways, privileges once accorded only to favored denominations of Protestants, now applied far more broadly, unquote. Sarna, in his book, American Judaism, A History, identified the five principles of American democracy that proved particularly important, in his words. These are, 1. Religious freedom, 2. Church-state separation, 3. Denominationalism, which he defines as the religious situation created in a land of many Christian churches and sects, when none of them occupies a privileged situation and each has an equal claim to status. 4. Voluntarism, defined by him as the principle that individuals are free to choose their religious beliefs and associations without political, ecclesiastical, or communal coercion. And finally, 5. Patriotism. Explains Sarna, quote, Collectively known as the great tradition of the American churches, these principles, even if sometimes honored in the breach, shape the contours of American religion forever after. Sooner or later, every American faith adapted to them, unquote. Was there a price to pay for Judaism's adapting to, as Sarna puts it, the contours of American religion? In his Response to Modernity, A History of the Reform Movement in Judaism, Professor Michael A. Meyer writes that there was, quote, There was no government control over religion, no conservative established church to set the pattern of religious life. A multitude of denominations and sects competed for adherence in a free market of religions. There were no officially recognized communities, no effective means for enforcing religious conformity. Among the early Jewish settlers in America, disregard for Jewish observance was rampant and mixed marriage not infrequent. One was not born into a Jewish community, as in Europe, but affiliated, or not, with a particular synagogue. Religion was less a heritage carried with little reflection from generation to generation than a conscious voluntary choice. Because America was so different from Europe, it often seemed that the inherited traditional Judaism was an old-world phenomenon and out of place in the New World, unquote. We can find proof of sorts for Meyer's contention in a sermon delivered by the Orthodox European-trained Rabbi Isaac Leeser to his supposedly Orthodox congregants at Philadelphia's Mikvah Israel on Erev Pesach 
1836. His words are no less true today than they were 184 years ago. Quote, We hear it alleged that our fathers were ignorant, but that we in a more enlightened age should be above their prejudices. Now, no one will gainsay the evident fact that this age has made improvements, wonderful improvements, if you will, upon the discoveries of former periods. But it is utterly denied that in moral sciences the smallest advance has been achieved. When the name of Jew was a passport to ill-treatment, when we were oppressed in the whole world, when many tears and few joys were our lot, we were cheerful, willing servants to God. But now, enlargement has been given to us, persecution for opinion's sake is no longer the fashion, and especially in this land we can worship God without let or hindrance. We here have a perfect equality with the other inhabitants. Yet here it is, where our religion is then most neglected, where we have truly succeeded in making our name a byword for carelessness and neglect of our glorious hope. Unquote. Perhaps ironically, it was a reform rabbi, Isaac Mayer Wise, who sought to address the problem in the late 19th century. With the public support of a number of Orthodox rabbis, he issued an appeal for the creation of a unique Minhag America, an American tradition that would guide the development of Judaism here. Although Wise succeeded in having an interdenominational group of rabbis meet in Cleveland in 1855, where they voted to approve his plan, members of his own fledgling reform movement led the attack against it. America had broken the shackles of communal hierarchy and structure, the argument against Wise's plan went, and that was all to the good. Was it really? We have much to be grateful for in America, much to be thankful for in America next Thursday, and on every day. We have much to be proud of in a land whose Jewish roots run very deep. But we also need to ask ourselves two questions. If Cotton Mather could use Hebrew phrases without translating them because his Christian readers could understand them, if James Madison could deliver a speech in fluent Hebrew, why can't many of us even read Hebrew, much less speak it? If William Bradford and the early Puritans thought that Torah law was the law of life and built the foundations of the world's greatest democracy based on it, why do we in America ignore that very same Torah law? We have much to be thankful for, but we also have much we need to consider about who and what we are. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Take a moment to pray for our country. And come next Thursday, celebrate the secular Sukkot with as much joy as possible in this age of COVID-19. A happy as possible Thanksgiving to all.